Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Welcome to Sunridge. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And Cal is one of my beloved rabbis. I sit at his feet. And uh, if, if you don't know, he, uh, he is a Bible teacher over at Linfield Christian School. And I've been over there. Those kids love him so much, you know. So, gee, I wonder why, yeah. I wish someone would love me like that, but it's like, it's not going to happen. Thank you, man. Thank you. I, I prompted that, didn't I? It doesn't even count. Uh, so I don't know if I've ever told you guys before, but I used to be a fireman. Did I ever tell you that? So to, but, like, in case you don't believe me, one of my uh, old bosses and colleagues at a certain time uh, in my career, Gary Bush and his wife, Rita, are here. Stand up, you guys. These guys are fantastic. And they're in town and uh, stop by so you can, you can talk to those guys after church and catch up on some of the awesome stories where I was always a shining light in the fire station of the gospel. And uh, if, if he says anything else, you know, he's not telling you the truth. So, like, I'm so grateful for uh, the input that Gary had on me in my career. So, it, about in October last year, Conservative columnist and uh, best-selling author David Brooks uh, wrote an article in The Atlantic. And in it, he said that American history is driven by periodic moments of moral convulsion. Now, moral convulsions are caused by the turbulence of converging moral viewpoints as a younger generation moves into greater power and influence. And groups that were formerly outside the, the circle of power rise up and they take over the culture and then a new morality emerges, but not until we go through the convulsion. And in this article, Brooks references uh, the late Harvard political scientist Samuel P. Humming, uh, Huntington, who found couple of things, that moral convulsions hit the U.S. every 60 years. There was a revolutionary period of 1760s, then the Jacksonian uprising in the 1820s, the progressive era that began in the 1890s, and the social protest movements of the 1960s and early 70s. And each one of these moments in history um, has certain features. So the features of a moral conversion is people are disgusted by the state of society. They have, uh, there's a sense of widespread moral failure. Trust in institutions plummets, and that includes churches in each one of these periods. Moral indignation is widespread and contempt. People have contempt for the elites and people in power. 
Now, I'm going to point out something, and I want you just to think about it. I'm going to put this on the screen. In 1981, Huntington predicted that the next moral convulsion would hit America in 2020. So just think about it for a second. Just think about that. And ask yourself, do I think that? Is that, do you find that to be true? And, I, and I'm going to ask you for like, are you thumbs up about that? You say, yeah, or are you thumbs down? Like, don't agree with that. And I want you to turn to somebody in your proximity that you do not know. Go ahead and do that right now. Look at someone you don't know, or you kind of only know, or you think, or you've forgotten that you know. And I want you to give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down, depending on what you think. Okay, come back to me. I didn't say, like, be friendly yet. That's later in the service. So what's happening is that this recent convulsion has left people, whether you're on the right or the left, and Christians spinning. But here's the thing that's true about this moral convulsion that we're going through. The guiding compass that is leading us into this new morality is not the Bible. It is moral relativism. I define moral relativism this way, and this is in your notes if you're following along and filling in the blanks. It's the idea that there's no universal or absolute set of moral principles. Now, like, I won't take the time to point out that that's actually an absolute statement in itself. But moral relativism is a version of morality that says, you know, to each his own, right? We, we all get to decide what's right and what's wrong, what, are, what the best values are for culture. And then not, not only do we decide internally, but then, like, who am I to judge anybody else? Moral relativism makes me the judge. Not me, you, like as in yourself. So uh, to be morally relative, it means that our application of morality is relative. Now, I'm not talking about your prudish auntie, your moral relative. Come on, people. (laughs) Stay with me here. When our application of morality is relative, then it changes based on whom we're applying it to. Have you ever found that, like, if you're in agreement with someone, you tend to cut them slack on their morality, and if you disagree with somebody, you hold them to a a tighter margin, a tighter rule? And what about ourselves? when we're morally relative, do do you ever find that you're a lot more forgiving about your faults than someone else's? And, you know, our decision about what we think is right or wrong is based on our preference or whether it's convenient at this moment, either in my life or in my world view. See, moral relativism for the church, it's not just a they issue. 
It's an us issue too. And it's not something that's happened overnight. Uh, It's been a long and slow process. Christians have been wandering from the teachings of Jesus for decades. We've been talking in this series about there's pressure from without and there's erosion from within. And the truth is that moral relativism has found a very comfortable home in the church today. And instead of a biblical Jesus-centric theology, the new post-Christian era is creating a political cultural theology. And other than the occasional insertion of God or Jesus, oftentimes you can hardly tell the difference between a Christian and someone who is just living out the modern culture. As we've been talking in this series, this study of 1 Peter, we've been at least suggesting to you, and I know that not everybody agrees with this, but that we are living in a post-Christian culture. But today I want to talk to you about how it, I believe it's to, it is a post-Christian culture of a different kind than maybe you're thinking about. And as much and as loud as the Christian community is today about the moral erosion in the world, a recent Barna study found that only 8% of the church are what they call resilient Christians, 8%. And when he uses that term, resilient Christians, that, that is not like super saint stuff. It is like people that go to church regularly. They read their Bible. Prayer is part of their family life. They give to their church. They serve in their church. It's basic Christianity, and only 8% are living that kind of Christianity. Russell Moore, who just until recently was the director of public policy for the Southern Baptist Convention, said this, that nominal Christianity is not just a deficient form of Christianity. It is the opposite of gospel Christianity. We're kind of developing this kind of, um, I don't know, it's like a personal faith recipe. We mix in a little capitalism or socialism depending on your perspective. We, we add a little preferred sex ethic or gender perspective. Sprinkle in a little political ideology, whether it's progressive or conservative. And then we have an entire spice cabinet of I'm anti this or pro that. And we put all of that in and then we ice it over with a little Jesus or a Bible verse often taken out of context And then voila, we have the perfect faith cake for each of us. And here's the problem. And I I put this statement in my email this week, which I know that you guys all read when it comes out on Thursday. Just waiting. Ding, it's here. Um, Once the church is co-opted by the culture, it can no longer speak to the culture or reach it. This is a big problem. It's a real big problem because we, we are in danger of losing the saltiness that Jesus talked about. 
And he said that when we lose our saltiness, we're basically only good for road base, to paraphrase. So what are we to do? As Christians who are trying our best to follow Jesus in a culture that seems to be changing so rapidly without and within, how, how can we be holy in a culture of moral relativism? That's what we're going to talk about today. See, the word the Bible uses to describe the distinctiveness of a Jesus follower is holy, holiness. But as, we, as we'll see in the section that Cal read today, in the first century, there were misconceptions about what that meant and confusion. And so today we're going to talk about how we can live holy lives in a culture that's morally relative. Number one, we need sober and alert thinking. Sober and alert thinking. And I define it this way, Christ-centered thinking that acknowledges the reality, yet focuses on the hope of God's grace. And that's going to make sense as I go through this part of the passage. But as you look at that, I want you to just kind of like think about the parts that are there. Thinking that is Christ-centered. That, that sees the reality that we're living in and yet is focused on the hope of God's grace. Let's look at verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So Peter says that we were to have minds that are alert and sober and that our hope should be set on Christ. To have an alert mind, like literally it means to gird up your loins, to like, like, you know, in some passages in the Bible, you see it talks about gird up your loins if you have a King James Bible. It really is like the picture of, of uh, a first century man getting ready to run a race or, or even go into battle. And he would take their outer robe and they would like sash it up around him. It's like that's what it means to be alert in your mind. It means to roll up your sleeves and get ready, which means that we can't be lazy thinkers. Sometimes our, our search for simple answers causes us to find the wrong answers. And then Peter says that we're to have fully sober minds, and he's playing off inebriated thinking. And I know that in this wonderful Christian community, you don't know anything about inebriated thinking, right? But because I've heard about some people that have done this in the past, been inebriated, you know that uh, inebriated thinking is, it lowers your inhibitions, right? So that you think things or do things that you would not have normally done. And thinking that is not fully sober is our minds are open to things that, that it, that's like normally it would not get in. You know, uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. May have been a story that you told at one time in your life. Sober-minded means to not be inebriated by cultural constructs. 
because you don't see the dangers of what's in front of you. Now, there's also kind of like paranoid thinking that is not sober-minded. And I won't, last week I told you some stories about my BC days before Christ, and we won't talk about those again this week. But, um, you know, some things cause you to have hallucinations. And uh, you see things that aren't there. And that can be a part of inebriated thinking. So when you were a little kid, do you remember um, what you were afraid of most in the dark? The boogeyman. Do you remember the boogeyman? Yeah. Is there a boogeyman? No. Well, some of you say yes. Okay. We'll talk later. But um, there is no boogeyman, right? But you were so afraid of that in the dark. He could have been under your bed, in your closet, wherever. Um, He's not real. But there are things in the dark that could actually hurt you. But they're, but they're less exciting, and they're, they're a lot more boring. It's like in the dark, you could run into a wall. In the dark, you could roll an ankle on one of your children's toys or stumble even on a flip-flop. I've done all those things. The boogeyman was not a problem. But Peter says instead of having thinking that is our inhibitions are lowered or... Um, or just thinking of things that aren't true, he says to set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. See, there are things in the dark that's facing the reality that are to be feared, but we have to be thinking clearly and sober-minded about it. And then Peter continues his line of thinking about how to think as a Christian in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. I want to draw this out. You know, it's like Peter's saying that there's a distinct change that, that needs to take place when, when you convert to Christianity. Our thoughts are no longer driven by the culture or what's convenient or th- Our mind is captured by, and remember uh, Paul said this in Romans 12. We talked about that a lot this summer. We're to have a renewed mind. Our way of thinking is changed. And Paul, or Peter here refers to the way we used to think as being ignorant, which is not a nice word, right? Ignorant means to be uninformed, but it's more than that, right? It's kind of a pejorative word. Think of how we use the word. I always think about like Bugs Bunny when he used to call. He's like, what an ignoramus. Do you remember that? What a maroon. What an ignoramus. I don't know why that got in my head, but I watched a lot of cartoons as a child, I guess. To be ignorant um, is to be strongly opinionated, but, but not to be uninformed. And Peter here doesn't delineate the exact evil desires that drives this ignorance. But what he brings out is an implied change to the way we think. Not ignorant and not conformed, uses the word conformity, to those evil desires. Those things that are in us that cause us 
to believe untrue things about ourselves, about others, about the world, about God, about morals. Because in moral relativism, self rules. Basically, I'm in charge. And what I think is the thing. And I'm the guide for all of my choices. And yet Paul writes that we're to have the mind of Christ, right? And where our affections, our thoughts are to be on things above. And as Peter puts it, we are to set our hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And it's this kind of thinking that like recognizes the situation, but refocuses on the hope of the grace of God and his kingdom in the world today. It's not Pollyannish thinking. It's not fearful thinking. It's not fantasy thinking. It's not anger-filled or futile thinking, but it's hope-filled thinking. It's hope-directed thinking. And that's why Peter begins this section, this exhortation to holiness by talking about our thinking, that we're to be sharp-minded and we're to distance ourselves from the old ways of thinking. So let's just check in for a moment before we move on about our thinking. Let's think a little bit about the way that we think. You don't have to answer out loud, um, but ask yourself the question, like, is my thinking Christ-centered? Is it focused on the mission of Jesus? Or does it often reflect the world's ways with just different positions. How do I respond when my preferred belief is being confronted by Scripture? In your notes, you don't have to take time to do that here, but like what I think about my thinking. It's like that's something to think about this week or to talk to somebody about it. What do I think about my thinking? But it's not just about thinking. Number two, holy living. And holy living is living life consecrated to God. I know that that's a Bible word, consecrated. We're going to unpack that a little bit as we go through. In verse 15, Peter says, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And you might recognize that. That comes right out of the law in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. So Peter is referencing the Old Testament law to the people he's talking about. And I know that holy can carry baggage with it, right? When you hear that word, uh, it might conjure up kind of like all the wrong ideas. Uh, Legalism, just like a religion of rules, just do's and don'ts without reasons or to be judgmental. Sometimes holy comes across that way, or prudish, or self-righteous, sometimes just downright mean to others. Holiness can be, can have this feeling of like being isolated or avoiding everybody. But none of that is the meaning of, of holy. First of all, I mean, Peter says, and he's quoting Leviticus, that God is holy. And he's none of those things, right? 
nor should we be. So what is holy? The word actually means to be set apart. Not isolated in a sense, but holy is to be consecrated to God's use. You're you're set apart, not just from things that are not part of the life of a Christian, but you are set apart for the purposes of God. That's what holy really means. We use it to, to only think of what we're against and yet it also encompasses the idea of what we're, what we're for, what we're to be a part of. And, you know, the Bible talks a lot about holiness. It talks about holiness in people. I mean, just read about the, in the Levitical law about, um, you know, priests and how, you know, the way their lives were to be constructed. The Bible talks about holy places like the holy of holies. And it also talks about holy objects. In the temple, there were certain objects that were set aside. They were holy for God's use or for the use of God's people. And that's the idea that Paul is capturing or like leveraging when he writes in his letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.20, he says that in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. And those that cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any work. And so in this imagery that Paul is drawing on, when it comes to holy, he's saying, like in this household or in the temple, there are all these different utensils and things that you use, whether it's for cooking or eating or doing work. These are, and some of them like are set aside, they are holy. And they're made of different materials. They have different uses, but it's not the dishes or the instrument that is so unique. It's who is using them and why they are using them. I imagine all of you sitting here, whether you're a cook or like you like to do crafts or, you know, you, you're you like you, you do a trade, you have uh, projects that you, you have certain tools or cookware that they're your go to things. Right. Like who doesn't have a favorite frying pan? OK, that might be crazy, but I do have a favorite frying pan. Um, so, like, what makes it, what makes those things your go-to thing? Well, one, it's accessible, right? How likely are you to dig in the back of the cabinet? In fact, you put the stuff that you rarely use, don't you put that in the bottom back cabinet? We just installed some of those drawers that, like, come out of that, you know, so you don't have to bend down. You pull it out. It's, like, it's magic. It makes everything accessible. There's a spiritual message in that somewhere, but I'm not going to use it. But if it's accessible, if it's clean, um, how easy it is to use, if it matches the job that that you're trying to do, these are all things that are part of what, that like contribute to something being our go-to utensil. To be holy is to live life, live a life consecrated, as an instrument in God's hands, to be accessible to God, to be ready to be used, to be willing to be used, to be available. And on a practical level, holiness means conforming to the ways of God 
rather than the ways of the prevailing culture. Often. Often they're different. So what's influencing your activities today and your behavior, the things that you invest your time and effort in? Are they things that you're, you're looking at it through the lens of, I'm, I want to be used by God in this situation? What about when you clash with culture? What about when like the thing that you know that God wants from you is different than what the culture says is acceptable or something that you should pursue. Are you a tool? Are you an instrument consecrated to God's use? Peter continues here, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, which is just to say that there's accountability for us there's accountability for the Christian to live out the Jesus ethic in this way, to live out a life that is consecrated to God's use in the culture and time in which we're placed. So to be consecrated, it means to be set apart for God's use, but in the end, it means you're available. And again, in your notes, there's just a little place that you can finish something or for your, on your own, or you can talk to somebody about it over coffee this week. What, what would you put after this statement? God, I'm available. I, I'm available for this. My thinking has been changed. And I see the reality, but my thinking is focused on the hope of Christ. And now I'm available for what you're doing in the world. Last. We're going to live holy lives in a culture that's more morally relative, then it's going to require a redemptive perspective. Redemptive perspective, which I define as fully embracing your redemption and God's desire to re- redeem others through you. Let's, first, let's talk about our redemption first. In verse 16, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. And as we've noted, I mean, thus far, multiple times as we've gone through this letter that Peter writes, he often like draws up imagery from his ancestral roots. And here he's drawing on the atonement sacrifices of Judaism. And basically says that the point of redemption is a price is paid. A price is paid because of the value of the thing being redeemed. And for those who, uh, you know, had, you know, history as an Israelite or as a Hebrew uh, at this time, they were redeemed through these sacrifices that were performed at the temple. And, and something, uh, some animal other than the person paid the price. But Peter's making a point that, that the redemption through Christ is like far more extravagant. The redemption that God brought through his son was not with the blood of an animal, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
There are no words for that. There's not even like language that can help us fully respond to that thought. And if you're someone who doesn't go to church or you're, you're new to Christianity and you're trying to wrap your brain around these thoughts or even just the idea that like, does God know me? Does he care about me? Um, does he even see me? This picture is so powerful. Because how does a God who we can't see and we can't touch, we sense, how does that God communicate his love to human beings? And I, I, can I explain every part of that? No, I cannot. But don't, don't you get the visceralness of that, that God gave his son to prove his love every person sitting in this room, every person walking this planet. But you know, it doesn't just apply to you. That's our redemption. But one thing all of us know is that you used to not be redeemed. But someone in your life, if you're a Christian today, expressed God's redemptive love to you. They spent time with you. They listened to you. They answered your questions. They may have like shown you love in practical ways. And they spent time talking with you and explaining something that you didn't understand before. And now you sit here as a Christian in a community of faith because somebody did that for you. And that's that's in Peter's reminder here when he says you were redeemed from your empty way of life. Each of us has that history. Having a redemptive perspective isn't just sitting back and enjoying the redemptive work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. You should do that often. We're going to do that today. We're going to take communion together as a church. But also that should cause us to reflect on all the opportunities that we have in the world to do the redemptive work of God in the world today, in a world that is morally lost, in a world that the thinking is turning upside down, we have an opportunity to show that same redemptive love in the world. And it's especially important when the culture is moving away from Christianity. The thing that will draw people to God is his kindness and his redemption. That's the opportunity that we have before us. Sometimes I'll, like, I'll just stumble on something that somebody says what I'm thinking in a much better way. And that's one of these cases. I want you to see a little video. It's five minutes long. Talks about God's redemptive love. I just want you to sit back and enjoy it because he's going to say it way better than I could ever say it. So just check it out. Our culture has forced many Christians uh, to primarily evaluate everything through the lens of individualism. And Jesus' teachings were centered around other people. He said the great commandments were loving God and loving one another. And it's very, very hard to love other people like Jesus commanded us when we're obsessed with ourselves. And so when people bring those expectations into the church, it, we don't have the resources uh, to be able to live our faith like Jesus has called us to. One of the great challenges 
that we have in being disciples of Jesus is that our culture pushes our individual projects, which I would call project self, which means we think the whole world exists to build our lives, uh, maximum pleasure and maximum expression for the individual. Uh, and so when it comes to following Jesus, we end up just dabbling with the teachings of Jesus and importing what he offers to simply make our lives better. And the problem with that is that we never actually get to the heart of what Jesus talked about. He framed up discipleship, self-denial, taking up our cross, loving one another, being servants, washing feet, giving ourselves away. And so we live with that tension between wanting to use Jesus for project self rather than following Jesus on behalf of others. More than half of millennials have not attended church in the last six months. Six out of 10 Christians in their 20s have dropped out of church at some point. The majority of people choose their church because they enjoy the preaching. Only one in 10 say they attend church because they feel a need to be a part of a community. Uh, there's just been so many studies that have come out that have shown that the way to true authentic happiness is not by trying to find happiness or have our own needs met, but it's by giving ourselves away on behalf of others. And so we never get to the good life Jesus promises when we're only dabbling with consumer preferences. We crave to be loved. We crave to be known. We crave to be accepted. And if we don't find that in, inside a community of grace, where else are we going to find that in the world? People normally respond to the call of Jesus at three levels. First, there's the public level, which is what do I do with my job? What do I do in the world? Then they have a private level. What do I do with my friends? And then a personal level. What do I do with the issues of my own heart? And Jesus actually, although those are appropriate lenses, Jesus calls us to something deeper. There is a primal call of Jesus, which is about shared discipleship and community and mission, which is below our individual concerns about our faith. And so Jesus calls us beyond just an entertaining or individual faith into a communal expression uh, of his kingdom here on the earth. There's another way to tap into the deeper call of Jesus, and it's shifting from dabbling in the Christian faith to devoting ourselves to following Jesus. It's a shift from convenience to proximity, where we choose where we live based on organizing our lives in ways that enable us to love people well. It's a shift from believing in Jesus to actually practicing what it is that he taught so we can embody the ethics of Jesus and the practices of Jesus and people can see an idea of what it actually looks like to follow him. And the last one is a shift from transience to permanence, where instead of just drifting across the continent following economic forces like everybody else, we choose to stay in a place so that we can love it and serve it over the long haul. I think people expect the church to be different from the world. And when they step into the church and it looks like the world, I think in many ways they're really disappointed. Uh, they want the church to be a counterculture. And so people don't just need ideas to change their lives. They need power to do it. And God doesn't bless worldliness. And so when we actually line up with what it is that Jesus taught, he blesses it, he anoints it, he gives it his power. And so Christians have a capacity to live the way God wants them to do in a really heavily contested culture like ours. Charles Taylor said that in the 1950s, we live in a culture of belief and people were tempted to doubt. But in a secular culture, it's a culture of doubt and people are tempted to believe. And so when people see the church as a compelling counterculture, they're tempted to move out of secularism and embrace something that's true and beautiful and hopeful and resonates with the things that they're wrestling with. We can't give up on the church because Jesus won't give up on the church. 
we are the church and Jesus won't give up on us. I think about the story about the couple on the road to Emmaus who were disappointed in how Jesus' life had ended up and were leaving the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus appears to them, shows them the truth of the scripture, breaks bread with them and then reveals himself to them. And they have this little phrase that says, did not our hearts burn within us? And with hearts that were back on fire, they went back to the people of God and rejoined in what God was doing in the world. I think that's God's heart for people who have dropped out of the church, is that they need to have a fresh encounter with who Jesus is, what he wants from them, that he does want to use them, that they're not destined to be cynics, not destined to be people without hope that God can draw them into something beautiful and compelling. And they don't just need to consume from it, but they have unique stories that they can contribute, unique experiences that will meet the needs and brokenness in other people's lives. And that when they give themselves away and use their wounds and their cynicism and disillusionment, God can use them as forces of healing for those who've wrestled with similar things. Told you you could say it better than me. So, Ben, you can come up now. Um, while they do, you know, moral convulsions happen. I believe that we're living in one right now. And during that convulsion, uh, yes, there's resistance to Christianity. And we feel, we feel, as we talked about last week, fear and anger sometimes about what is changing in the world around us. And we're, we're fearful, too, because we see Christianity being eroded even from within in many different ways. And it becomes increasingly difficult to live a life that is pleasing to God. And yet, this is the calling God has given us. It will take us to be very intentional about the way we think. It will take us looking at our lives and what God is doing in us and what he's given us in a fresh new way that we consecrate ourselves to him. Not just what we're against, but how God can use us in this day and time. And it will take a redemptive perspective. Us living in a culture that is so different but yet living in a way that's redemptive and looks for the opportunities that God gives us. That's the calling God has given us today. In response to those thoughts, let's stand and let's worship together, and then I'm going to come back up and we'll take communion together, okay? God bless you. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.